Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down? Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ from the dead? But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that you believe and are justified, and that is, it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thank you, Danny. I feel like when you read scripture, we should call you Daniel. No, I know. <laughs> he didn't like that. Ooh, he didn't like that. <laughs> we got a bad... We got a bad reaction. That's good. All right. Thanks, guys. Uh, thank you, Danny. I appreciate it. So uh, two quick things before we get into this morning's message. The first is I want to emphasize our kids' meeting next week. Um, the, I've said this before, but the, the, uh, raising our kids, stewarding the, the children that have been given to us is the church's sacred responsibility. It's probably our first priority institutionally as a church, the first thing that we're supposed to do. Before we even go outside the doors of the church to tell people about this message, which is kind of what we're going to be talking about today, we need to steward the children, the people, the hearts, the minds that God has already given us, right? Until we know how to do that well, I don't think we know how to do the other piece well. And so next week we have our kids uh, training for any of, anyone who's interested in volunteering. If you have interest, if you, if you are a volunteer, if you have volunteered in the past, if you're thinking about volunteering, um, please come to that meeting. I will say to uh, our, some of our, the students who come to our church, who go to college, both, um, both those who uh, are here and are not here, so tell your friends, um, if you want, this is for men, if you want to know how to be a dad, probably volunteer in a kid's ministry. It helps. Uh, I, the only reason I know how to do anything is because I was around kids before I had kids, which is important. And if, and it's a really great way to pick up chicks, right? No. Is that bad? Should I say that? I shouldn't say that, but it's okay. Um, so, no, seriously, we want, we want everybody who uh, could possibly volunteer to volunteer, because it is, like I said, our sacred, our sacred responsibility. So I just wanted to emphasize that. And the second thing is our business meeting next week. Um, sometimes there's a little bit of confusion when we talk about business meetings, uh, and that confusion comes about in that people think they need to be a member in order to attend. Um, 
that is not the case for us, and particularly it's not the case for us this year um, for a couple of reasons. We're, we're a church that's officially a revitalization, and so uh, in that process, um, it changes some of the things that members do, and so everybody right now, in some real and true sense, is kind of a member of our church, and so we want everybody to be there. Um, that's number one. And number two is Ashley was correct. You will get a gift, and that gift is significant. It will, ch- it will probably change your life. So, so please, uh, regardless of whether uh, you just showed up to church two weeks ago or you've been a member for a long time, we would really like to have you. We'd like to have lunch with you uh, after church, and then we'd like to, you to attend our business meeting. I promise I will get us out quick. Um, we will cover our business, and we will make uh, a big announcement, and then we will, uh, we will skedaddle, okay? All right. Okay. Now... Uh, So this is the second week of a series we're calling Foundations. I believe it's up there, yes. Uh, And last week, we talked about the first phrase phrase on our mission statement. So if you have your bulletin, if you have your weekly news, pull that out real fast. We We did this last week, but I'd like to do it one more time. And last week, we talked about pursuing the way of Jesus. And we said uh, that Jesus essentially does not desire a bunch of people who simply sit around and believe in him, but rather... Uh, Jesus uh, wants a group of people who uh, are committed to following his way, who are committed to being his disciples. So to pursue the way of Jesus with the mind and from the heart in cooperation with the Holy Spirit is kind of what we were talking about last week. If you were not with us, uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Uh, Our website is currently down because we're doing some, not because it's broken, but because we're updating some things. And so in two weeks, our website will be up, and you can go back and listen to that, and you can go back and listen to all of our messages. But I'd encourage you to do that if you weren't here last week, because I do think it was, these series of messages are pivotal for us. So so you can go do that if you get, if you weren't here last week. So today we're covering the second half of our mission statement. So pick up your, your weekly news. And on the very bottom, underneath the logo, underneath the name of the church, it says, Pursuing the way of Jesus and proclaiming that he is Lord. So historically, the church has summed up what it believes by putting together what are called creeds. Does anybody know what a church creed is? Have you ever heard of that before? Nobody. No hands. Like, okay, good. Raise your hands. We believe in participation here. Uh, So these are are agreed-upon short Uh, statements usually of belief that comprise or hold the primary beliefs of the church. So what happened in most of the creeds is that early in the history of the church, the leadership of the church got together and said, what do we believe? How do we put it into a condensed form so that people can understand it and people can talk about it? And they put together these creeds, and the two most popular creeds are the, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. Have you heard of these before? So we have the Apostles' Creed. We'll shoot it up there for you. Um, I'm just going to read this for us real fast because I think it's really wonderful. Uh, So if you're, uh, you can read along on the screen. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, that's small c Catholic, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. This is a wonderful 
uh, creed. This is a wonderful summation of what we believe. And my advice to all of you in the church is um, if you spend your time looking at this creed and then memorizing some scriptures that correspond to this creed, uh, that's a really great way to, um, to kind of buttress or to fill up in your heart what we believe as Christians. If you, met, if you know this creed and you, and you know some scriptures that correspond to it, you can really give for us a complete, um, a complete history or story of what was happening, of, of, the, of the Bible, of the truth of Jesus. And really, you could spend your whole life, and many people do spend their whole lives just wrestling with and jumping into the Apostles' Creed, um, d- digging into the scriptures that correspond to that, to that passage, and really learning about God through it, right? So th- it's something we can never really exhaust. So that would be just an encouragement to you today. But the, these creeds were, were uh, constructed uh, after the Bible was written, right? Most, both of them were kind of in the third or fourth century, essentially, that these creeds came about. But the Bible, the Bible you have in front of us, many scholars believe there was a, what, they, what is called a proto-creed, a proto-creed, which is a creed that came about uh, in the early, early church, so early, in fact, that it found its way into our Bibles today. And this proto-creed was a summation about what the church believed. It was a small phrase, a very short phrase, in fact, that summed up what the church thought. And that phrase... That, that many scholars believe is a, is a creedal statement within the context of our scriptures, is Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Just those three words, Jesus is Lord, came to represent everything, nearly, that the church believed in the early days. So when somebody asked the people in the early church why they lived the way they did, why they lived so differently from the people that were around them, well, they responded by saying, Jesus is Lord, right? And when they spoke or proclaimed publicly the truth about God, they said, Jesus is Lord. It was, it was the thing that determined the way they lived, and it, deter- and it was the primary proclamation. It was the primary words that they spoke to the world. Jesus is Lord. And so this week, I want to look at the second half of our mission statement. I purposely took that early creed of the church, that early summation of what they believed, and I put it at the at the tail end of our church's mission statement, because why reinvent the wheel is my basic uh, approach to all church life. Uh, but, <laughs> but as disciples of Jesus, and as uh, people who follow Jesus, it's important that we uh, master this phrase, that we understand it, that we get it into our minds and into our hearts. And so for the rest of this morning, I want to briefly dig into this phrase. What does it actually mean? Because it's three words, but it's, it's kind of weighted down with significance. It, it's, it's a weighty phrase. It has a lot uh, around and behind it. And to be honest with you, I could preach on this phrase that's found all over the New Testament, right, for really every day. There's so much depth and there's so much history in the Old Testament and so much of that is pulled into the New Testament and, and corresponds to the world in which uh, the gospel was first going out in the Roman world. There's, there's so much there that we could uncover, but which made preparing this message slightly difficult because <laughs> how do you winnow through it all, right? Uh, but today I really want to focus in on that phrase, Jesus is Lord, okay? 
You respond, okay. Right? Great. So what does the phrase Jesus is Lord mean? What does it mean? When we say Jesus is Lord, what are we saying? What are we proclaiming? And in order to understand what this phrase means, we need to understand what the early church meant by it, right? Because they came up with this phrase. And the best way I can see to explain what Jesus is Lord actually means uh, is uh, in the scriptures, in, in the scriptures that we have in front of us, is to quickly look at the story of scripture to determine what the phrase Jesus is Lord means. So unless you understand the story that the scriptures are telling from both from Genesis all the way to Revelation, that story that climaxes uh, in the person of Jesus. We will never truly understand the good news that Jesus came to bring to the world until we understand the sweep of the story of Scripture. We'll never really get to the heart of what this phrase means. So before we can really understand what Jesus as Lord means, we need to understand something about Jesus, right? To understand Jesus as Lord, we have to understand the Jewish context within which this world, this word, Lord, and which is which in this phrase, Jesus is Lord, came about. We have to understand the context in which this phrase rose up, right? Because Jesus was Jewish. Surprise, surprise. He was actually a Jewish rabbi, a teacher, which rabbi just means teacher essentially, and framed everything he said and did within the context of the Hebrew scriptures. If you have a reference Bible, you know this, because everything Jesus says, you, there's a little letter next to it, and you can flip back to the Old Testament practically. But, uh, almost everything he did, he framed within the context of the Hebrew scriptures. And so in order to understand who Jesus is and why he is Lord, we have to understand, at least in brief, the stories that the scriptures, the story that the scriptures are telling. Does that make sense? All right, so if you have your Bibles, flip back to the Old Testament, to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in uh, verses 11 through 13-ish, right in there. And in this passage, the prophet Samuel is talking to King David. King David was the greatest king that Israel ever had. He was, he was the prototype for what a king should be like in Israel. Uh, Israel had a king before David that wasn't too hot, and they had a lot of kings afterwards uh, that did not do a great job either. But David is, is considered kind of the apex of what it meant to be a king in Israel. And the prophet Samuel is talking to David, and this is what he says, beginning in verse 11. He says, The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, when you're dead, which is a very poetic way of saying when you've passed away, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you in your flesh and blood and will establish his kingdom. Okay? So this is what we call in the scriptures the Davidic covenant. God, because David was the prototypical king, he was in many respects, he was not a perfect man, he was human, but in many respects he was uh, the prototype. He was the picture of what God wanted a king to be. God says to David, I'm going to establish your house forever, essentially. I'm going to raise up your uh, ancestors, your children, and they're going, to, they're going to sit on the throne in the way that you sat on the throne, but something greater even is going to happen. I'm going to establish this throne forever. And this, this prophecy that Samuel gives to David is reiterated numerous times throughout the Old Testament. You know when something kind of catches on 
in culture and people begin repeating it over and over and over again. This promise that Samuel makes to David in this passage gets repeated over and over and over in the New Testament. And it begins to take on these facets and nuances. It begins to expand a little. The people of Israel begin to add, or the prophecies begin to be bigger. And things get to begin to be added on to what this means exactly. So Israel began to have this belief based on this prophecy and this passage that was read over David and other times that this happened, that uh, the throne of David, Israel's greatest king, would last forever. Or at least that uh, there was going to come one person who would establish his throne forever. Because David's throne kind of gets mixed up, right? Because if you read the story of the, of the people of Israel, of the Jewish people, what happens? They, they, their kings aren't very good, and they don't obey God, and God allows other kingdoms to kind of come and take them away, and uh, we kind of lose the kingdom of Israel. The, the throne of David is not established forever because there's a break in that because they're taken off into slavery. But because of that, there's this promise that's reiterated over and over and over in the New Testament that one like David, a king like David, would come and that this king would establish David's throne, and that the people of Israel would be blessed kind of like forever because of this establishment. And this uh, person began to be called the Messiah. Has anybody ever heard that word before, Messiah? The Jewish Messiah, which the word Messiah just means anointed king or uh, lord or ruler. So that's what it means, basically. And this Messiah was going to deliver his people. He was going to deliver them from oppression. He was going to take them out of slavery. He was going to establish their, um, their kingdom in, in a similar way, but in a greater way than even David did. And this, this belief began kind of rolling through the Old Testament. It began moving uh, from the prophecy that was given to David through the Psalms, through the prophets, and all the way into uh, the intertestamental period, the period where there was no real Bible right before Jesus, where there was no more scripture being written right before Jesus came. And the belief was that this Messiah, this deliverer, this uh, anointed king would usher in a period of prosperity, or what, in, or what in Hebrew is called shalom, which really shalom is this word that means total human flourishing, Right? So that, that this Messiah would usher in this, this time where uh, the people of Israel would flourish. But the, the prophecy even expanded beyond that. Because in Psalms like Psalm 117, it begins, uh, the, the Bible begins to tell the story that the Messiah would establish his, his throne, his rule. But that his rule wouldn't just be... Uh, limited to Israel, that his rule would bless the entirety of the world, right? So you see the borders of this prophecy begin to expand and expand and expand and expand as it travels through the narrative of Scripture. And we see this come to complete fruition in the gospel, not complete fruition, but in the gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke. It'll be up on the screen as well. There's also Bibles in front of you. I make this announcement occasionally. Uh, in the seat backs in front of you or in the rack in front of you. You can grab that uh, if you want to look along. But in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 31 through 33, this is what the Gospel says. You will conceive and give birth to a son. This is the angel speaking to Mary. And you will call him Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the, called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, right? And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. You see, Luke described, is, what he's describing here is the Messiah, the person that Israel had been waiting for, the one who would deliver them from their enemies and become king over everyone was actually, Luke is saying, this child, Jesus. Luke is saying that the Messiah has come in the form of this baby that was being born to Mary. You see, the, the scriptures proclaim that Jesus came as Israel's Messiah to deliver them. But this did not happen in the way that they expected it to happen. Because they believed that when the Messiah came, his primary job, his primary mode would be as a military ruler and that he would overthrow those who oppress Israel. Right? So this is part of the, what happened with the, the tension with Jesus when he was on the earth. is because what Israel wanted, what they thought, and what, honestly, if you read the Gospels, what the, his disciples are always asking for throughout the, when are you going to establish your kingdom, Jesus? You're the Messiah. When are you going to establish your kingdom? And what they mean by that is when are you going to marshal an army and get rid of these Romans who are occupying our land? That's what they're really getting at. But Jesus came and, and to establish the kingdom of God, but he did not come to establish it the way that anybody thought that he would. Early Christians believed that Jesus came to deliver not just Jewish people, but the entire world from a greater threat than the Romans. What early Christians claimed is that Jesus had not just, uh, had not just defeated military and political authorities during his reign, uh, during his time on earth, but that he had defeated sin and death itself. That, in, that Jesus' primary office, his primary authority, was to overthrow the ultimate power that held sway over the world, which was sin and death. Early Christians believed that this is what the Messiah had actually come to do, not simply to liberate us from political oppression or authority, but that Jesus had come to to, in some senses, to deliver us from political oppression. That is true. But more than that, the overarching reality of the work of the Messiah, Jesus, was to, to deliver the entirety of the earth from its enslavement to sin and to death. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians 2, verses 8 through 11. This is kind of a summation of this belief. Uh, and you'll, you'll see this uh, over and over and over again in the New Testament in Philippians 2.8, this is what Paul says. And being found in the, in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that was above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue uh, acknowledge that what? Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So early Christians believed that Jesus was the Messiah, that his death accomplished the defeat of humanity's ultimate enemy, death, right? 
and that his resurrection from the dead vindicated him as the true Lord and King of the entire universe. This is not local stuff. This is cosmic language. This is not little or particular. It's not located to a little swath of land between the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean, right? This is a global thing that these early disciples of Jesus say was happening. Or, so let's put a fine point on it. What were the early Christians saying? Early Christians believed that Jesus was Lord of the universe, that he was king of the universe, that his resurrection proved it, that his resurrection proved that he was that, and that they had to tell everyone about it, all right? Because in their day, there were a lot of forces vying for the throne, right? Just like in our day. The Caesars claimed that they had or were Lord. So we looked at it, I don't know, if a month or so ago, but uh, Caesar, the different Caesars, would put on coins, Caesar is Lord, right? Implying that they had ultimate authority over reality, right? And if you were caught proclaiming that something other than Caesar was Lord, you were in a little bit of trouble, right? Within the context of the Roman world. So the proclamation that Jesus is Lord was politically incendiary, right? It it had some teeth to it. It could get you in trouble, And it became politically incendiary. If you read the story of the early church, you realize this very quickly, right? It was a political act, okay? But in our day, there are those vying for the throne as well, right? There are those vying, other than Jesus, there are those vying for the throne of David. There are those vying for the throne of our hearts, There are all kinds of philosophies and principalities, economic, religious, and political ideologies vying for our primary allegiance. These things are vying for the throne of our hearts. But the truth of the Bible and the claim of all Christians has been for millennia that those uh, those other allegiances, those other uh, powers, those other principalities and powers that the Bible calls... Uh, do not deserve our primary allegiance, that Jesus is the one who deserves our primary allegiance because he is the Lord of the universe. And because these Christians knew that Jesus was the Lord of the universe, they set about communicating that reality in both word and deed. And they began to proclaim this truth, truth, that Jesus is Lord. And what's interesting about this phrase, Jesus as being the Messiah, what's interesting about that phrase and why it's so important that we understand it is that Christ is just the Greek equivalent of Messiah. It's the translation. So when you read Jesus Christ, you could easily read, because it's appropriate to, read Jesus Messiah, right? So to say Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King or Jesus is Christ or Jesus is Messiah is the, is the same way, of, is a different way of saying the exact same thing. And just like those early followers of Jesus, we are called to proclaim this reality as well. We as a church, as a group of people, are called to live and to proclaim with our words the reality that Jesus is Lord and nothing else and no one else is. Does this make sense? We are called to proclaim this reality in all the world. So, uh, proclamation. 
the word we have in our mission statement. It's kind of a funny word, isn't it? Uh, we don't, I, I don't, if you proclaim something, you expect to be like on a rooftop with a trumpet and then you yell some, something, right? It, it feels very regal. So it's a little bit of a funny word. But uh, proclamation is the word that is most appropriate to use here because it's not just about the things we say. Really, proclamation has two components. Proclamation has a component that we embody or that we live, and then proclamation also has a component of of verbal proclamation or what we say. So for the rest of today, I just want to look briefly at these two components um, of proclamation, what it means to actually tell people about this thing, this truth that Jesus is Lord. So uh, in 1 Peter 2, verses 12, we looked at this passage just a few weeks ago when we were going through the book of 1 Peter. It says this, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. We are called as a church to be a visible community of people who live like Jesus is king. Does this make sense? We are called to live in the reality that Jesus is king. And this is what the early church did. They lived in such a way as to point to the reality that Jesus was Lord, that Jesus was the king of the universe, that there's something real and true. We witness to the reality of Jesus being the king of the universe by living like we are in his what? Kingdom, right? This is what Jesus came proclaiming, the kingdom of God. If, when we live like Jesus, when we, like we talked about in the, last week in the first part of our mission statement, when we pursue the way of Jesus, we are people who live in his kingdom. And what is Jesus' kingdom? I don't expect you to answer this question. Jesus' kingdom is the realm right? It's the dome over which things are as God would have them to be, right? So if we're people of that kingdom, we need to be people who live in such a way as God would have us to live, right? And by so doing, by living as people of the kingdom of God, we proclaim the truth, the reality of who Jesus is. Does this make sense? Good. I'm just assuming you're all saying, absolutely, it makes complete sense, Nick. That's, yeah, okay, good. In my head, you're always very nice to me. You always affirm me completely, which I, bet, which I guess is good, better than the converse of that, right? All right, so uh, that's one component of proclamation. The second component of proclamation we find in Romans 10, verses 14 through 15, which is just the two verses that follow uh, the verse that we read for our teaching text today. And this is what Paul says in this passage. He says, how then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So this passage and others like it are all about the, what we think about when we say proclamation. The verbal proclamation of the reality that Jesus is Lord Now, notice what Paul says at the end of that passage, that this proclamation, this thing we are telling people is what? Good news. That is, in Greek, it's euangelion. It's good news, right? Uh, This also is a a slightly incendiary word that Paul uses here, because in the Greco-Roman world, uh, on on Caesar's birthday, they would call it a euangelion. They would call it good news, right? So, Paul kind of takes this and he repurposes it and he applies it to Jesus, right? What's so interesting about the way that Paul puts this 
And what's so interesting about us as Christians in our world today is so often, and I'm sure you've heard this before, Christians can put the message that Jesus is Lord, they can, they can phrase it in such a way as it doesn't sound like good news. <laughs> have you ever heard anybody do this? They have communicated this reality in a way that sounds like pretty horrible news, Right? But the truth of our verbal proclamation of the reality that Jesus is Lord is that it ought to be good news, because it is, right? If Jesus is the Messiah, and his coming freed us from sin and death, right? And if his coming is leading to human flourishing or shalom, that is good news, right? If the coming of the Lord Jesus, if, if the obedience to Jesus as the Lord of the universe brings about the things that Jesus says it would bring about, then it is good news. And it is not, and I shouldn't need to say this, but I, I should, it's not bad news, okay? And we need to be cognizant as a people, as, uh, as a church, of when we, when we say things about Jesus, when we make proclamations about who Jesus is, that it sounds like good news, right? That it doesn't feel like bad news. That it's not, that we don't, that we don't communicate it to hold it over somebody's head as though it were bad news for them, right? Because the proclamation of the reality that Jesus is Lord is always euangelion. It is always good news. The Jesus uh, who, that, who we proclaim and the Jesus that the scriptures talk about is good news. He is good news to the poor. He is good news to the oppressed. He is good news to those who struggle with sin. He is good news to everyone, and we must proclaim him as such. Now, one last thing before we go. It is not our job as proclaimers, as carriers of this message to, and you've probably heard this word before, convert, right? To convert people. It's not our job. It's our job to proclaim this message, right? The rest is between God and that individual, okay? It is our job to live this message and to speak this message and to leave the rest to them and to the Lord of the universe. And the best we can do, and this is kind of how I think of it, the thing that we ought to do in our proclamation of Jesus is leave people with this question, and this is the question I want to leave with all of us today. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? This is the question that Paul leaves with people uh, in Acts Mars Hill, 17 or 19? It's bad that I don't remember that. This is the question that he leaves them with. Who is Jesus? It's the question that we need to be, that we in our proclamation need to be leaving with people and that people need to wrestle with, right? People who don't know Jesus need to ask the question, who is Jesus? And we ourselves, even people who are in a church, many of us who proclaim to be followers of Jesus also need to routinely ask ourselves this question, who is Jesus? Because if he's just a dude, right, we don't really need to listen to him. We don't really need to do what he says. We don't really need to set our lives in such a way, to to position our lives in such a way as to pursue his way, like we talked about last week. 
Who is Jesus? Is he really the king of all the universe? Does he truly reign over the cosmos? Does he do this? Because if he does, and we answer that question in the affirmative, if we answer it as yes, then it changes everything about the way we act. It changes everything about the way we conduct ourselves. It changes everything about the way we relate to one another, doesn't it? And so, Christians are people who proclaim this reality that Jesus is Lord, both with our lives and with our mouths. But we are also people who are constantly asking the question of ourselves, who is Jesus for me? And when we get into trouble, right, when we get off track, when we, when we lose sight of the reality of who Jesus actually is, when we lose sight of his name, the power and the glory of his name like we sang about today, we can occasionally live not in the kingdom of God. We occasionally step outside the realm of the, the dome over which God uh, has his authority, the, the dome over which uh, things are as God would have them to be, right? And we occasionally step out from under that. In order, in order to be a people who proclaim the reality of Jesus well in this world, in order to be that people, we have to be a people who wrestle with this question and work to align our lives to the best of our ability with the reality of the kingdom of God, that we live there as accurately as we can so that we can give this good news, so that we can proclaim this message with as much integrity and honesty as we can. Does that make sense? And so as a church, we are called to proclaim this one all-consuming truth, that Jesus is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we ask that as uh, we go through our day today, as we go through our day this week, as we run into a myriad of different circumstances, circumstances or situations, as we, uh, as we just live our lives, both in the good and in the more difficult things we run into, God, I ask that you would keep this, pres this question present on the forefront of our mind. Who is Jesus? Is he the Lord of the universe? Because if he is, that changes everything. And for those of us who have encountered the person of Jesus, would you help us be reminded of the reality that Jesus is the Lord of the universe and that living life in and around him means that we live as citizens of the kingdom of God, that we live in such a way as that uh, we would uh, live and act as God would have us to live and to act. And God, I pray that as we go from this place, that we would be people who would proclaim this message, who would, who would communicate this message both with our lives as followers of Jesus and even with our words, as we proclaim the good news, the euangelion, the truth that Jesus, you are the Lord and you have come that we might have life and have it to the full. We pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. So go today in the grace and the peace of the Lord Jesus Christ.